in so many ways. So let's get started today in our series in Romans, uh, Romans chapter 2. Now in Romans so far, there are two very powerful statements that have been made in the last couple weeks. One is in verse 16, uh, where Pastor Josh last week, where Paul writes this, he says, On that day when men, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now that's terrifying. Where God judges the secrets of men, right? And women, ladies, don't feel excluded. Mankind, okay? The human race. And in verse 24, and we're going to get to this today, it says the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Uh-oh. So how many love me? Oh, two or three. Okay, everybody's raising their hand now. Praise God. You won't by the end of the service today. You will love me. I'm just kidding. I hope, hopefully you will. Uh, because all of these things that I, I want to communicate with us today are just from God's Word, and, and I want us to be able to soak it in and, and really, really trust God in what He's saying. Amen. How many know that you weren't saved just for eternity? You were saved for now. You are saved for living a life now that glorifies and honors God and draws all people to God because of your example in this world. Because you are living a spirit-filled, God-led life. So before we really get going here, let's review kind of some of the stuff we've learned so far. Of the four parts of Romans, um, we, we saw we're still in the problem part. The problem, and then we get to the promise, secondly, uh, provision, and then um, prescription. So we have these four things, and what happens... Um, first of all, is he's, Paul is pointing out the problem. In Romans chapter 1, he points out an age-old problem that's been around forever, and that is the denying of the existence of God. And we went through that and um, preached through that, and that's all online. You can go back if you want to refresh the text as well, if, you, if you're a reader. But um, Romans 1 is a reminder of what happens to those who reject God and ultimately what happens to them. So Paul's speaking directly to a couple of different kinds of people when he writes Romans. In chapter 1, he deals with the outright pagans, those that are those are running from God, and then there are the loose living. Those are the ones that are in the church, but they, you know, they really don't care about how they're living so much. But in chapter 2, he deals with the most difficult crowd to reach, and that's the Pharisee. The very religious. The very religious people are the hardest people to reach with the gospel. And I'll tell you why. Here's the secret. Because being a Pharisee or very religious is an affront to grace. Because grace says that God loves Larry, the pastor at Abundant Life Church, as much as he may a prostitute down on Commencement Bay, on downtown Tacoma. There is no difference between me and her in terms of the love of God. The love of God is the same. He doesn't show favorites. He is the lover of all people. Of all people. That's what the Bible says. He loves all people. But also the Bible does say that he hates some people. Did you know that? Okay, so we're not going there today, but you can look that up on your own. We've already done that. So, Very religious people, the hardest to reach the gospel, because grace says the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is equal access by all people. So the Pharisees don't like grace so much, because... They, they're perfect, they've learned to live right, act right, talk right, be right, which is all okay, but for the wrong reasons they have done this. And so beginning here in verse 17 is where we're going to start. He deals with it by confronting religious Jews. And there's a sort of pious heritage that makes them believe they are more significant or they're more important or special people because they're very religious. There are, there are two crowds in, 
that he addresses here, one in chapter 1, and if I could lump them all together, is I, I guess you would call them the raunchy crowd, right? They're raunchy. There's all kinds of sexual immorality. Whenever you have wrong or, or twisted theology, you get a wrong sexuality. So when you're thinking wrong about God, you get a wrong thinking about sex, and he deals with that, and that was one of the hot ones. People keep wanting to hear that online, send me emails and stuff, which is great. That's wonderful. Um, and the second R is here in chapter 2 is the very religious. Now, those who are religious judge, they judge in hypocrisy. And Pastor Josh talked about judgment last week in the first 16 verses, how that when they judge, it's not that we can't judge according to the word of God, but, you know, Paul gives a great prescription for this. He says, if any of you is overtaken in a fall, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering your own self, or else you'll be tempted to. And then Jesus also brings it in parallel and correction that you are to confront sin in the church, but if you confront them and they reject what you say, take a brother with you and then go with them. And then he says, if you agree upon that right there and you agree that he's in the wrong, that he needs correction, I'll agree with you in heaven. That's actually what that scripture says. We're two or more gathered in my name. I am there with them. He's in agreement with the decision that you make based upon the, the, the morality and principles of God's word in that situation. That God is in agreement with you for that correction. That's actually what the scripture means. Down in verse 17, it becomes more uh, refined and focused because God deals with self, the self-righteous hypocrite, not, not something anyone wants to be called, right? They don't want to be called a Christian. Christian hypocrisy is the most lethal thing in this world. Now, there's a lot of people that call Christians hypocrites that are just saying that out the side of their mouth. But when they point out someone legitimately in our culture or society and they call them a hypocrite, it does great damage to the house of God, to the people of God, to God's church. Jesus used the word hypocrite to describe the Pharisees, and it's a powerful word. By, by saying to them that when you give or when you do your acts of service or you do these things, uh, like don't be like the Pharisees because they like to do them just to be seen. They like to be the ones seen... Uh, setting up the tables and teaching the class. and They like to be the ones that like to be seen up front, leading in prayer. They like to be seen giving and all these kind of things. And, and Jesus says, don't be like those people. In fact, in Matthew chapter 23, it's a full liturgy of Jesus calling them hypocrite one thing after the other. He calls them hypocrites eight different times in just uh, Matthew chapter 23. He even calls them whitewashed tombs or beautiful um, headstones to graves. You look really good on the outside. It's impressive. But on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. You look really good, but inside there's nothing there. So the world defines, and Webster actually defines, hypocrisy as an empty display of religion, pretending to be what one is or believe and then does something opposite of what they say that they are. So when we speak today using the word hypocrite in the context here, it's it's a powerful one, and it's one that I've wrestled with, quite honestly, all week, because there are so many things that I look at my own life, and I realize that being a hypocrite for the Christian is simply not putting into practice and living out the prescription of God's word daily in my life. That is a lot of stuff. And I wrestle with those things, because I have attitudes and, and certain, well, I won't say, of my ideology sometimes or my flesh or temptations that I just want to 
run off with, and, and, and it's in contrary to, and yet I'm calling myself a Christian. That's the real taking God's name in vain. Calling myself a Christ follower and not living like it. So they appear right. They worship right. They seem to love God, but their appearance is only a mask. It's only a counterfeit. They say they love God, but they have no interest in serving Jesus. Paul describes these kinds of people um, as those who have the appearance of godliness but deny the power of Christ. In other words, I'm a Christian, but I'm an alcoholic. I don't believe Jesus can deliver me or satisfy my longings. All style with no substance. That's what, they're, that's what they are. The appearance of godliness with um, nothing. Now, at home, we have several nativity scenes. Well, we, we had them. Uh, we started re renovating uh, Pam's office, and we painted and did some things. And uh, when we did that, we decided, well, let's just take the Christmas stuff down because we were, you know, doing all these other things. We got kind of busy, and, you know, it's sort of different when there's no kids at the house anymore. <laughs> just Jesse. He's not a kid anymore. He's like this man, like, who are you? But as we were doing that, I was reminded of all the stuff we have. So we have all these nativity scenes, right? Jesus on display everywhere. He's on display in our house. I mean, there's no Santa Claus. There's none of that. If you, if you have Santa Claus and things, that's your family. But we do have a tree, and our tree is, is, a, is a genealogy and history of all things Ellis. I mean, it's got our family pictures on it. It's, it's a celebration of our family, right? I mean, it's got trains and instruments we play and pictures of the boys as, the, as they've grown ornaments they've made and places we've been a little yellowstone thing here and places stuff all over that we pick up things and we put on that tree to remind us to celebrate our family because that part of this season i believe is god's gift to the family and we love to do that so we're celebrating the family we we like that it's kind of a, all of our little trophies of our existence as uh, together as a family one year, years ago, I think, uh, I don't even think Andrew was born yet, we went up to the, <laughs> the mountain and we cut a tree down. How many always do this every Christmas? Is this still a tradition in your family? Three, four of you? Not very many. But some do, and it's a lot of fun. So we go up, we take the sleds, we, we did something that I know some will not like. We tie the sleds to the hitch of the truck, and we pull the kids around and hope they break their neck. <laughs> you know how it is when you have kids. The first one, Brandon, we're like super protected, bubble wrap, double car seats, everything, you know, slam in the back. By the time we get to Jesse, it's like, don't play in the street too long. You know, it's just a little while, it'll be all right. Um, but anyway, we go up and we get this tree, and we're hiking in the woods, and we pick one, and it seemed to look good up there. But we cut it down and bring it home, and it looks like the most pathetic Charlie Brown tree you've ever seen in your life. And the kids are just little, so we set up the train set as is something I remember my dad doing with me. And, and we put up this tree, and Pam and I are looking at this tree. We're going, this is pathetic. And, you know, it was kind of back when tinsel was still in a little bit. Does anybody use tinsel anymore? Okay. <laughs> the only thing we used tinsel for when I was in school was to put it between our teeth and blow on it. We thought it was kind of a cool thing. But... Uh, Anyway, so, but Pam and I look at this, and we're just like, it's crooked, and it looks like, I mean, literally, Charlie Brown's tree, it's all barren and stuff, it's a dug fir, so, we, but we take it, and we tinsel the snot out of the thing, right? And we hang, hang as many things on it as we can, and, and people call, oh, what a beautiful tree, you know? But Pam and I know, underneath, it's a hypocrite. One of the best examples of a hypocrite is this guy right here. His name is Jesse James. 
Jesse James was uh, the, the most notorious bank robber um, from 1662 to 18, 18, 1862 to 1888. For these 16 years, he, about 16 years or so, he robbed banks, murdered, he was the most popular of his day. The ironic thing about Jesse James, he was a murderer, he was a bank robber, um, he had a long streak of the notorious uh, Younger Gang, and he would rob stagecoaches. Most of his thing was claim to fame was killing people and robbing banks. So he would go, kidnap them, sometimes on a Saturday, the clerk, take them to the bank for some sort of access, then he would kill the clerk and rob the bank, right? Well, in fact, Jesse James also loved going to church. Ironically, there are several stories about this. One of them was that he went, he killed the clerk, robbed the bank, in time to make it for Sunday school. Another one was he went, he, he, he killed, a, shot a couple people, robbed the bank, and had to hurry out because he was the instructor for the hymn singing class. So he loved church, although his schedule of robbing banks and murder didn't coincide much. I bet you worship leaders didn't know that was part of the resume, did you? <laughs> Jennifer, you have to start robbing banks. You have to start robbing banks. You know, it's just what you got to have to do. Uh, it's just the way it's going to have to be, Terry. Um, hypocrite. He looked one way in one crowd, but another in another. No one goes to a hypocrite for life-giving advice. One comedian said, don't go to a doctor whose houseplants have died. So Paul is speaking to this kind of person, hypocrites, in chapter 2. Let's begin reading our verse in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of the truth and knowledge, you then who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. I mean, it's very obvious here that Paul is now speaking directly to the converted Jews in the church with a Jewish background. He has written to the pagans, the loose living crowd in the church. Now he goes straight after the religious. I mean, it's kind of funny way because he's writing to get a reaction from them, it seems. I mean, he's writing these very incendiary Remarks. He's going after them. And I mean, he spent a lot of pointed words in chapter 1 and rebuked the wickedness that was in the culture and some in the church. But now he points both barrels directly at the church, at the people in the church. And he says, I want you to pay attention to something because you're no better than those people. You might say, well, I'm not like those people in chapter 1. I'm not... Uh, Living in sexual indulgences, just whatever I want, however I want. There's no, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm a person that doesn't lack in self-control. I'm doing all these other things. I'm really good. And so there, these people at this point, they're probably reading this epistle, this letter to the church in Rome. They're going, yeah, go get them, Paul. 
You nail them to the wall. I mean, that's the kind of preaching we like, right? I mean, preaching to the choir. Yeah, we can talk about the world and all the things they're doing wrong. We can talk about all the ills in culture and, and the substitute that, that wokeness is for righteousness in our culture and all these kinds of things. And we can blast it and we can hammer it. But now Paul says, wait a minute. Sort of like, you know, all of you that sit in the recliner and yell at the, the, the cable news. That's exactly what's going on, right? I mean, chapter 1, the disobedient to parents, right? Remember that? The disobedient to parents are among the worst. Those living in sexual sin, he goes through that. Those atheists, those terrible. Paul, you let them have. Go after them. But now Paul says, you're worse than they are. You're living a life of rejection of God. And he writes this inciting a reaction. I mean, after speaking to the raunchy ones, now he speaks directly to the church and he unloads with both barrels. And I mean, at the beginning of chapter 2, he deals with the religious. How, how dare he now lump us in the same group with those people? How dare he do that? We're the chosen people. We're special people. How can he even put us in the same sentence, this guy? Now he unpacks his message here to him and he directly to us today is what God's speaking to us, friends, the same thing. Don't take this one word out of context. Oh, that was for the church in Rome. Make no mistake, God's word is for you and it's for me. And he gives them three things that they do that is right. And he starts off his thing by saying, first, they have, the pure, they have a pure heritage. In verse 17, he says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on um, and rely on the law and boast in God. And they took the pride in that name, Judah. Jew is short for Judah, which means praise. And so they like being, you know, the people of praise. And they often took Jewish people and other communities took the term Jew as a surname. So it would be like saying Larry Ellis Jew. It was, it was a second surname. So I, I'm, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. They say, I'm a Jew of Jews. And, and don't hide, they, he says, don't hide behind your background. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 3, 9, remember, God can raise up from these stones children of Israel. So forget all of your hubbub about being so special because you're so special. Well, I've been in church 40 years. I've heard the best Bible teaching on YouTube. I know what's good. And God says to them, he says, if you're not living the word, then you're a hypocrite. Secondly, they have the right promise. So he, in verse 18, he says, and now, and know this, and approve what is excellent. He's talking about them, because they are instructed from the law. So in chapter 3 and verse 2, you, you have been given the very oracles of God, he says. So the same thing, as his people, you have the right word, you have the right book. In the Jewish kids would have to memorize the Shema. Hear, O Lord, the Lord our God is one God. And, and they would, as little boys, they would go to the bar mitzvah, little girls bat mitzvah. And bar mitzvah means son of the commandment. And so they would go and they would memorize it. They would keep the law of God. They would wear these little leather boxes on their wrists and around their neck and on their tassels and on their knees and they would have in these little boxes pieces of scripture. They were to memorize it. By the time they were 13 they would memorize Psalm 113, 114, 115, 116, and 117. It was it was what they did and, and they became men 
and women of the community at age 13. And, and But I want you to know something, friends. You today have more scripture in your hands and understanding than they even did. You have a lot more scriptural understanding and Bible in your hands than a lot of people in the world today have. And pastors in our world today, in some countries, I tell you, you have more of God's Word. We have books about God's Word. We have media about God's Word. We have five, six, 20 Bibles in our houses. We've got Christian television. We've got Christian radio. We've got Christian YouTube. We've got Christian this, Christian that. We have the Word of God being poured out in a plethora of ways, just like they did. Friends, we have no excuse. Now, once more, on top of that, in addition, you and I have something that I think, friends, is the forgotten God. And that is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And I want to challenge every single one of us today that that is where I'm going with this. And if you have not been baptized in God's Holy Spirit, if you haven't experienced His touch in your life, today is your day. Thirdly, they had the right profession. The right thing to do. Romans 2.19 he goes on and he says, And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, do you ever think of yourself that way? I mean, that's quite a commission, right? You are enlightened, friends, by knowing Christ. You're not any better than anyone, but you have the word. Verse 20, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. He calls them a light. He is, they are a light in, in the, those that are in darkness. And through you, he says, all nations were chosen. They, the Jews, those people in the church that have the word, they are responsible for their generation. They are responsible for their families. They are responsible for their co-workers. They are responsible for the people in their purview, in their rubbing shoulders. You and I are bear that same burden, friends. We're afraid these days of being too radical because of the way words are pushed around today. And, and Christianity is so exclusive, when in fact it's the most inclusive of all. Christ calls all people to be saved, whoever they are, wherever they come from, no matter what they think even. He calls them to come to him because when we decide for Christ, he begins to give us a new thought. He begins to give us a new urgency, a new word. They were chosen. They had the right heritage, the right word, and the right work. This is God's design for Israel. They, they would bring the light to the world. They were chosen. They were enlightened. They were empowered to do one thing, and that was reveal the glory of God. Praise, right? They were Jews. Isaiah 42 says, you will be a light to all nations. In fact, in Isaiah 42 and verse 6, it says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who are in darkness. He juxtaposes them as light to that world that they live in as being dark. We are the light of the world, you and I, and you and you, all of us. We are the light of the world. And it's a tough place these days to be a light in the world. I suffer sometimes when I, I look at, my heart hurts when I see things on social media that I once knew people that knew the Lord, and now they're walking in darkness. 
Friends, it bothers me. It shakes me to my core to see uh, some of our young people that have been in the church in the past now living homosexual lifestyles. It bothers me now to see some people that were married and happy and had a family in the church now serving all kinds of other gods because, you know, they, because they, they gave up, because the culture is so loud, because it's shouting so much. It's not that Christians don't love God. They just love the world a little more. So Paul tells them, there's all this stuff you guys got. You have all this. That's what's in your resume. And he pivots and he uses their righteousness to reveal hypocrisy. And he, he starts by juxtaposing what they're supposed to be to what they've become. And they've been given the right family tree, the right heritage, the family name, but they now ditch everything, their heritage. It was supposed to, to, to teach and ex them to exchange. And, and what do they do? They exchange it for something they think is better. Better at least according to them. They think it's better. Switching out God for themselves. And Paul says this degradation, this slide into hypocrisy, he points out three things that make God's people um, go away from a solid life built in the grace of God to a life of a hypocrite. Number one, this is what they do. To become a hypocrite, exchange purity for impurity. You see, they had the right heritage, but they chose an impure one. Look at, in, in verse 21, he really expounds this even more as we go down further in the text. Romans 2, 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. See, they had the right pedigree, the right promises, the right profession. Now he deals with their problem. The problem is they didn't practice what they preached. Orthodoxy without orthopraxy. They, they threw it out the window. There was the right belief. It didn't match with their behavior to what they professed. And this is the confusion in our world today, friends, because to say certain things about how we should be living as Christ followers has become blurred by the plethora of information. For example, the Bible speaks expressly about sexual purity and what it means for marriage. It classifies it and gives it principally and methodically and very critically and, and, and very doctrinally what that means to live. And it is given a stamp of approval by Jesus. Well, culture has manipulated and twisted that into another meaning. The same with, with for example, drunkenness. The same with any other thing. If the Bible really says this is important, or faith for that matter, that we're to have confidence in God above all other things, no matter what happens. Job's words, though he slay me, yet I'll serve him. And I see so many Christians crumble and fall underneath the weight of just life's trials, and they can be big, they can be hard. They can be difficult. They can crush you. You know, some, a close family member dies or you're suffering in physical pain. But, and then we just begin to throw, throw Jesus in a little ball and we, we throw him in the trash because he wasn't what we thought or what we've been taught that he was supposed to be or do. And, and this is exactly where they were. They were in this crossroads between what is true and what they had become. 
And it's, it's a call back to repentance for them. He's giving them this, this hand extended. He's saying, you need to realize once again the beauty of your salvation. You need to be filled with God's Holy Spirit and experience the love of God. You don't just need to hear it as some religious, dry, pious liturgy. You need to really know what God is saying to your life. Friends, this is the very real, very personal God. If God can write in Leviticus about taking care of your body odor, he's a personal God. Friends, we fall short of worshiping the Lord in a myriad of ways. And I have been so humbled so many times in preparation for preaching or in standing up here as I encounter the word of God that I'm called to proclaim and I often realize of my own inadequacies. And you have heard me tell them and share them from my youthful temper of days gone past or, or any one of my thoughts and actions. I just fall short and I hope and trust today that that end of that spear becomes more pointed to you and I than ever before you know you will never be perfect. You can never arrive at that perfect destination, but you have and you and I can trust in the grace of God. And he will help us to begin to echo the glory of God. We are to be reflections of God's glory. Amen? I just realize sometimes that, that when we are as Christians, maybe we get comfortable just because of God's grace, not as a result of all that happens because of God's grace, but because we assume so many things because of it. And we become lazy and living out loud the praise of God, which is a life of praise. It's not just standing up here and singing, I exalt thee, I exalt thee, O Lord. That's great. I love our corporate worship, and I love the Bible example of us gathering together in God's house where the Spirit of God dwells and lives among us, but He's always in us and among us. He is in your life, and you give Him praise when you are at the grocery store. The fullness of the goodness of God for us today is realizing that this term hypocrisy needs to, needs to really be and confront every part of our life. I'll tell you, though, the only way this is possible to really live is possible by the power and the counsel of the Holy Spirit. You will be religious without joy, without the presence of the Holy Spirit. I have known a lot of people, there's two pe people that come to Christ. It's the way, they, the way that they come to Christ. One is they come by just a great demonstration of God's power. I mean, his power is on display, and, and they feel God's love, and it's just like I'm running to the altar, right? I realize God loves me because his power is boom, boom. And then there are some that, 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 that have God's word, and, and so I see some in culture today coming to God this way, uh, people on social media, because they begin asking questions, and the ultimate end of all the questions is that there is a creator, they're coming to the realization and the rationalization that the, esca the escalation of um, evolutionary ideas is for the old aged ridiculousness of the past. It's like Santa Claus and, and um, magnet therapy. I don't know. You know, it's just, I'm not sure what it is. I keep on sure. Oh, did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. Um, those people are saying, what? I like acupuncture. Okay, well, just kidding. Um, if there was ever a rewind button, we could do that. Um, but being religious 
nor just being an acquaintance with the information leads to such dryness. It leads to a life that doesn't understand the fullness of God's revelation toward you. How many enjoy sitting down and having a conversation with someone that really knows what they're talking about? I had some college professors that were super bored. You know, It's not that they probably didn't know the stuff, but then there are some that, that some people you want to sit with that really know what they're talking about, and you want to have a conversation with them. I mean, I do. I want to listen. I want to hear what they have to say. And so you begin to have this conversation. Well, God has something to say. You know, God has something to say. And the way that we hear that is obviously through his word, but by the presence and power of his Holy Spirit. This is what it looks like without it. A young family comes and has grown up in church, and, and she gets a hold of this idea that she has to do all of these things now to, to, to make up for whatever that it is. So she has six children and adopts three more. The the church has a potluck and it needs six dozen cookies, so she's first to volunteer. She teaches in the nursery, then on Wednesday night she teaches another class. Her husband is involved in all kinds of things, and she does all of these things, and she sits down and every day and she leads this group and that group, and she has to do all these things to be religiously conformed to what she believes that a, a good Christian person should do. And after a while, she has worked herself so nuts and crazy without relationship with Jesus, she's sitting in a spiritual straitjacket in a rocking chair on her front porch singing, Jesus loves me. And friends, this is religion. This is what it looks like when we don't encounter the Holy Spirit. See, he's the forgotten God today. He's the forgotten God in much of our churches. Or he's the prostituted God in some, in their teachings. Friends, you and I are called to have this relationship with God by the power of the Holy Spirit. To be in communion with a very real, very alive God. That's not just liturgy or something dry, but that God, that power of the presence of God that speaks to you will pull the hypocrisies right out of you. Baptism in the Holy Spirit will compel you to want to do good things. You'll be bringing, you'll be dumping all your old music. You'll be changing the things you'll listen to. You'll be creating new environments for yourself and hanging around different people because God has begun to put new wants in you. He's begun to put new desires in you. He has come to change your life. He's going to give you new friends. He's going to put you in different situations. He's going to keep you involved in learning and knowing the word of God. He's going to keep you communicating with people that are in the house of God. He's going to keep you in worship to him and adoration. Because when you're in your car driving down the freeway, his Holy Spirit shows up in your vehicle and you don't know what to do. You don't want to run people off the road, but you're so full of God, you have to pull over and just say, thank you, Jesus, for your presence and your touch today. You see, that's the kind of God we're talking about. That's the introduction to a Jesus via the Word of God that spills out relationship with God that talks about real God. Boy, I don't know where that came. God, praise God. Secondly, the road downward to hypocrisy is exchanging the promise for compromise. Throwing out God's promises for my desires. And this is what they did. Here, have you ever considered Jesus' question that he asks in Luke 6.46? Lord, Lord, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I tell you. I love and hate that scripture. I love it because it's God's word and it's the words of Jesus, but I just don't know if I know how to answer it. 
Why don't I do what he asked me to do? Don't you just love it? It can be tough to answer. I mean, there are any one of a thousand excuses, right? I mean, it's a question to any disciple. Here's the truth. Jesus has a lot of fans, but very few followers. Like someone you follow on Facebook or like or love on Instagram or follow their motorcycle channel on YouTube because those are the only ones worth following. Never really touching God or, or obeying him, just seeing him in sort of our context and our way that I can manipulate him and his power like the force somehow with our finger on the button. I mean, they, they had the right promises, just like we have the right promises. But then they were being asked the same question that we're being asked by Jesus. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Thirdly, the third thing that leads to hypocrisy is a damaged profession or work that you have to do. They had a profession of carrying a good witness to the world. They were praised, right? They were the light of the world. And now rather than being a light, they're dissing God. In verse 24, Romans 2.24, he says, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. I was in um, a restaurant a couple Sunday mornings ago, and the gal that always waits on me um, for this particular time, she, she comes over and she waits on me. I always greet her and say, hey, hey, good morning. Kind of this little conversation, right? And I heard her go back in the kitchen, and she... Somebody else that I know that's, that's also a Christian and leads a group there um, occasionally, she's saying, you know, Larry, he always is, like, you know, saying hi. And, you know, he's always like this and stuff. He says, how come that other guy that says he's a Christian? Yeah, I, I could hear him from the kitchen, right? How come he's not that way? Well, I'm glad you don't see me all the time is what I thought. <laughs> I'll never forget one time, me and my senior pastor, I was a youth pastor in Oregon, and and we were sitting, and it was a Sunday night after service, and, and he and I and his wife and Pam were, had gone to the store, right? We're just sitting there in the store. We got the windows down. We're just waiting for Pam and Joyce to come out of the store. And so they're in the store, and while we're sitting there, we're just kind of like, we're exhausted. It's been a full day, right? I mean, Sunday nights, I mean, if back in the day, Sunday nights were the service to go to. I mean, hellfire and brimstone, people waiting at the altars for an hour and a half, sucking carpet, organ playing, you know, hallelujah. I like that stuff. Anyway, so we're sitting there, and this gal comes by, and she walks up to the table, and she goes, aren't you that pastor from the church? And he said, yeah, yeah, I am. He said, yeah, you should smile. <laughs> Listen, I'm not saying we always look that way, right? But, you know, it's really important that any actions that we have or do, begin to really consider in light of the word of God. Have you considered your money when you compare it to the word of God? How you save it. Give, save, and live on the rest. That's what the Bible says, right? Do you consider that? Do you consider how you should be prayerfully pursuing relationships with people? Do you consider how that God has called you to live certainly and do certain things when you have been doing and acting in Have you considered the way that you speak when you're around a certain crowd? I mean, it can, it can be a challenge. I know. I, I, 
I've worked many years, you know, in those environments. And I understand people, most people are, are not God followers, statistically. And it can be a difficult thing. And the thing of it is, not that our moral stance always gives praise to God. I'm not saying that that is the avenue. But i got to tell you, friends, as a statistic recently came out, I think Stanford University did it. Forgive me if I got it wrong. I can look it up this week and find it for you. That people who, specifically Christian people, who are living their faith, have happier and more fulfilled lives. Joe Rogan announced this on his program. He was reading the article, and he's not a God follower. And he's come, his faith journey has come in the way. But I, I see this, and I recognize these different ideas in the world are being confronted with the real statistics that people that are living and following Christ, 60% or more of these pieces of life, relationally, financially, in these ways, 60%, they only counted the ones that were 60% higher, are because they were following specifically religious Christian values. When he says this, he says, the name of God is blasphemed among the world because of you, among the Gentiles. A hypocrite gives God a bad name. Now, keep in mind Paul's writing too, he's, because I think we might lose some of the savor of his argument if we overlook it. He's saying to the Jews, the converted Jews, you give God a bad image to the Gentiles who you're trying to reach when you're a hypocrite. How do you expect to proselytize people into following God when you don't know how to live for him yourself? If you expect them to live and to become part of your culture and follow, be a God follower and begin to practice worship like you do, begin to know God like you do, live like you do, begin to uh, living for, rather than living for your own interests with no regard for life or your witness, how can you expect them to understand the value of his word? I'm reminded of 2 Samuel chapter uh, 12 where David is confronted by Nathan the prophet. Remember, uh, David had an affair with Bathsheba, sends her home. Uh, she comes back later. Hey, I'm pregnant. Uriah, is, uh, her husband, is one of his faithful soldiers. And so he tries to have him killed on the battlefield. It doesn't work out. So he, comes, he, tell, well, he tells him to come home, excuse me, first, and just stay. But he won't even go to his house. Hey, come and have a vacation. He won't even go to his house. He just sleeps on the front porch of the palace, sitting there. He won't go home. And so he has him. Uh, killed in the battlefield, this just terrible plan that he has. He has him killed. And then in Second Samuel, uh, when he's finally confronted by Nathan, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. Well, yeah, that's what you would say, right? I mean, David's feeling the rebuke of Nathan's rebuke. Nathan comes and he says, you're the guy who took the one thing, and you have a lot of it. You took the one thing from this one poor fellow, and you took it for yourself. And David's like, I'm going to die, and he repents. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin, which is good. You will not die. Well, that's a relief. Verse 14, however, because by this deed you have been occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child is born and you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. David, you did this. God forgave you. But everyone else that's not a God follower saw you, and now they're just like, you're God stupid. Was it years ago? I remember one of our missionaries came, and they, they were talking about how difficult it was. And I said, what are some of the most difficulties that you see? And they said, well, in our country that we're in, uh, all over there are billboards about pornography. 
And I said, really? He said, yeah. And everybody knows that pornography is from America. And America is Christian. And so that becomes hard. Years ago, we had a Muslim man that was married to a gal, and she came to church for the longest time. And finally, he had to front, come in and confront me with some things. And we sat in the office, and it was all of this and all of that. And all of, all of, all of, all of, all of. And he began to ask me, well, you uh, Americans, you always get drunk. I said, I've never drunk in my life. He said, you always do this. I said, I'm not saying that just because I'm special. I've, it's just something that God had done in my life. I was never raised around it. Parents never drank. I, it was just, you know, we just never did it. I never had any use for it. I'm not saying I'm any better than anybody that has, okay? So he sits there and he starts selling me out. I said, well, I don't do that. But he said, he said you don't? Christendom in our world isn't exactly what we think it is. And, and, and these days we have missionaries being sent to America from African countries. And, and David is, is confronted with this sin. And the biggest problem, the biggest fallout, two things. One is God takes away from him his most desired thing was to build the temple. And God says, I'm taking that from you. You took away his mission. Oof. Let's not preach that. Set aside. Secondly, he took away, he took away that thing that was supposed to be their praise. Their example, a light to the world. Because they had a damaged profession, led to a wrong perspective. Now I'm preaching to them. Romans 2.25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you because you have the written code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outwardly and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. This his praise is not from man, but from God. Share that with your Jewish friends. Circumcision was an outward sign of an inward change. It was the Jews' claim to fame. It was their stamp of approval for practice. It was something that set them apart. A Jewish baby boy came in eight days to be circumcised, um, and, and it was one of those things that made him a Jew. And it was a religious custom. It was an identification with God's people for uh, a pointing them to away from hypocrisy, pointing them to serving God. But they, Paul says here, you become a hypocrite because you're only a Jew outwardly. You're not loving God. You don't have any identification really with following God. There's a problem here, he says. So if you're doing this and following God, all you have is an empty ritual. A religious practice with no substance. We have church attendance with no power. You have acting right and giving tithe with no relationship with God. It's only valuable if you follow God. They were using outward identification as circumcision as fire insurance. It had gotten so bad that the rabbis were starting to have little sayings and jokes about people who were not circumcised and different tribes of people just to put them down. It was easier for them to just be and act outwardly what God was calling them to become inwardly. Ceremony became substitute following God. Hypocrisy is the outward expression of true stubbornness. Stubbornness is not a spiritual gift as some of you may have thought. 
The same in the Old Testament scripture where God gives them this commission of circumcision. He, he tells them that it's more than a simple physical practice. Deuteronomy 10, 6, 16 says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Scripture says that hypocrisy will cause you to resent authority. 2 Peter 2.10, if you're living as a hypocrite, you look nice in front of one crowd. You look nice when you see the pastor, but you're mean to your family when you go home. It will cause you to be to resent authority. 2 Peter 2.10-20 says it will expose you as a hypocrite. Uh, besides resenting authority, it, it causes harm that will be dealt back to you. The way that we deal it out to others and the way that we hurt others, that hurt will come back to us. Convictions will begin to cave in if we resent authority and we live a life of hypocrisy. There's an inscription on the cathedral in Lübeck, Germany. It reads this way. Thus speaketh Christ, our Lord, to us. You call me master and obey me not. You call me light and see me not. You call me way and walk me not. You call me life and choose me. Call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me might and honor me not. You call me just and fear me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. Here's the truth, friends. We have Christians that sound like, act like, look like, behave like God followers but don't love the word. The sad truth is that we are around the fire but we never get in. We, we believe we can continue in filth and drunkenness and compromises of this world without it impacting our witness. God came to save you from all of those things. To give you hope in this world even. More than just eternity, which is wonderful. There is a better life. Quickly, these just basic things to overcome hypocrisy. How do we do it? Sometimes we hear that David fought against Goliath, and that's true. But did you know that David and his men defeated five giants? Not just Goliath. In fact, there was Goliath, and his name means to revile. You can hear him doing that, right? Who will fight me? Ishbi Benob, my place is in the heights, pride. Lami, sensual, full of food. The six-fingered giant, greed. Sath, interestingly enough, Latin derision. We get, to get this idea of hypocrisy. 1 Samuel 21, 18 says, After this there was a war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushtite, struck down Sath, who was one of the descendants of the giants. Now, I wrote a book on the five giants, a booklet. Uh, for those that want it, we can get it to you, but... We don't have any printed right now. Saf, double-faced hypocrisy. Now, it's tough to get that meaning, so we get this derision from the Latin, and there's some things that we can do to overcome this idea. Number one, to confess the sin of hypocrisy. You need to come to clean with God. And those that are around you that have seen it, you need to ask for their help. Confession can be hard. Secondly, confront hypocrisy with integrity. Psalm 25, 20, guard my life and rescue me. Let me not be put to shame. For I take refuge in you. My, may integrity and uprightness protect me because my hope is in you. A lot of my's in there. Practically, integrity means do
doing what you see me doing here as I would do at home? Can we take any one of the movies that you watch at home and play it here on the screen in the church Sunday morning? Uh-oh. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. Integrity is not God's responsibility. Integrity is not among the spiritual gifts. Job 27.5 says, I will never admit you are right. If I die, he's talking to his buddies, sobs some party, and he's saying, and he's talking to, he says, I will not deny my integrity. Psalm 7.8, but the Lord judged the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity. Most high. Psalm 26, vindicate me, Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. Psalm 26.11, but as for me, I will walk in my integrity. 41.12, in my integrity you uphold me. Integrity is not a spiritual gift or God's impartation to you. Integrity, friend, is you saying to God, Lord, I will follow you. And the advantage we have today, friends, is that we have the scriptures and we have the Holy Spirit. The next thing is to engraft sincerity. Integrity is not see, Engraft sincerity. You know what's interesting, not so much of Saph, but Sibachai the Hushtite. You know what his name means, the one that killed Saph? Corpse-like. Dead to self. Saph represented hypocrisy, one of the giants that David, his mighty men, had to defeat. But his defeater, the one that came out, Sibachai, means to be dead to self. Sincerity. And finally, I want to ask Pam and our worship team to come, and our prayer team, would you guys come and stand here? And um, everyone stand, if you would, please. <clears throat> Thank you so much for your patience today. I pray and hope that every time the ministry of the Word is presented at Abundant Life, you're challenged, and there are, there are specific directives that we find God give from His Word that we can do. Amen? We need to live a life of faith, and also we need to walk it. Right?